Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the outcomes of the COP26 climate conference and what role investment managers can play to help achieve climate stability. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Mylin Ngo, Head of ESG and Specialist Fixed Income Manager at Blue Bay Asset Management, and Ian Aylward, Head of Manager Selection and Responsible Investing. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. So as we record this, it's just a few days after the close of the COP26. So we thought we'd give Will the week off and instead focus very much around the conference, what we heard from it, and where we think it's going to take us with respect to helping to save the planet, including just one example being how we can eat less meat, perhaps to make our personal contributions to that. But I'm not sure that we felt that Will was best equipped for that, given his his appetite for fried chicken. So we're going to focus on all matters of sustainability this week. And I'm delighted to have a guest star. We have Mai Lin, who's the head of ESG at Blue Bay Asset Management, a specialist fixed income manager. Hi, Mylin. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Nikki. It's great to be here. And we're joined by Ian Elwood, who's our very own resident fund selection and responsible investing expert. And more importantly, given we're in Movember, he's, I think, so far the winning moustache grower, certainly oh. amongst this crowd <laughs> on the call today. Ian, how's, how's the mo going? It's, it's going well. I think Mrs. A would disagree. I think I'm very glad I'm past halfway. You should be very glad this is a podcast and you can't see it. But um, you know, so far, so far, so good. Well, you're putting yourself through it for a very good cause. And I hope those of us that stalk you on LinkedIn can, can, see, a, can see a photo. If not, I think you need to get one up there as, as quickly as possible. Oh, I haven't thought of that. Yes, I could do that. <laughs> Job for later. So back to business. Ian, can you just give us a little bit of a run around? What were the highlights from, from COP26? And perhaps to start with, for those that have just taken it for granted, like me, we're all referring to COP and no doubt dealing with the sort of police puns that have been going on in the last couple of weeks. But what does it actually stand for and what were the highlights? So, so actually, it stands for the Conference of the Parties. And this is the supreme decision-making body of an international convention. Of course, in this instance, it's the UN's Convention on Climate Change. Uh, the first one occurred in 1995 in Berlin. And it's happened most years, not every year, for example, last year due, due to COVID, since and this year, of course, it was in Glasgow. There were certainly high hopes for it, uh, hopes for a, a range of measures from a range of countries. But perhaps it's helpful just to think about almost the bottom line, think of one figure. You know, ultimately, you know, we want to limit global temperature rises to one and a half degrees. And that's compared to pre-industrial levels, so two degrees at a maximum. And need to achieve that by getting to a net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. And that's, of course, because carbon dioxide is a key source of global warming. And by the way, it's often overlooked, but the glide path is really important here as well. And it's not much help, for example, if, if companies and governments all arrive at this point in the last five years or between 2040 and 2050. You know, we do need to see a steady decrease in these emissions over time. So getting slightly more granular, 
Um, we had a range of declarations designed to help the planet towards that target. And why don't we frame it in our own Prime Minister's words or framework of, of cash, coal, cars and trees. So firstly, the cash. Financial organisations have agreed to back clean technology, whilst developed nations have agreed to give more cash to developing nations. On coal, there's now an explicit plan to reduce the use of coal for the first time, although there was some debate around the wording. And of course, this is because you know, coal is responsible for almost half of those emissions globally. On to trees, over 100 countries, and that does you know, comprise, constitute the vast majority of the world's forest in those countries, agreed to cease deforestation by 2030. And of course, forests absorb those emissions. So that's why that's important. And finally, and most intriguingly, the US and China agreed between themselves to work together over the next decade. Of course, the really big question is, will this be enough? The answer, if you listen to the experts and the scientists in the last few days, appears to be not yet. We're still somewhat slightly above the two degrees. But the good news is that's obviously moved again in the right direction. And these targets and statements do have to be revisited each year. And one would hope they would only be going in, down in you know, one direction downwards. OK, thanks, Ian. That's clear. So, so Mylin, what, what do you make of these various announcements and, and promises that came at the end of COP? Is it all about governments taking action or given we all represent sort of investment firms, are, mm -hmm. are we expecting investment firms to care, to take action, to help with that? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. I was just about to say, I've noticed the COP funds as well. And I think for all of its jokery, I think it's actually, in a way, actually brought it back to people sort of everyday lives and being able to connect with it. And sort of at least it's given that profile. So so I think it's a good thing. Um, thinking about what announced what came from COP, I'd say is that ultimately, what Ian mentioned earlier, the ultimate goal was to keep 1.5 alive. And in that respect, we did keep that. And so that was a modest success, but we barely kept it alive. I think that's very, very clear. I think what we've seen is that there's been an emissions gap. We know what we need to do. We're not there yet. And, and what we hope to see um, going into COP, so the road to Glasgow was really, we wanted to see leadership. We wanted to lead it, see leadership from governments. And unfortunately, we didn't see it to the scale and to the speed that we needed. So I guess if it was a report card, I'd say to governments around the world, could do better, should do better, need to do better on that sort of side. So at the end of the day, and um, whilst the um, commitments, we saw some surprise announcements from, from India, which were welcome, but they were delayed. It was disappointing that China and Russia were not at the table. The great thing was US was back at the table um, on that side. But these are just pledges. They're promises. They're not necessarily a guarantee that they'll be delivered on that side. And unfortunately, what happened at COP is that there were commitments made, but they were not enough. Um, they ran out of time. But the good thing is they, they promised to come back next year and revisit those commitments. So that's really positive from that sort of side. But yeah, overall, I'm slightly disappointing, but we're not out of the game yet. And I think that's the critical thing we need to hold on to. And I guess to your second part is that I think we need to see climate change as everybody's responsibility. Governments, yes, they're important because they set the policy framework from which the private sector knows the rules of the games and can make decisions. Um, they have that certainty about policy landscapes, but we can also take leadership. So every um, sort of sector of society has a role to play 
play within that. And it's really, really important. We contribute different things. So the private sector through um, businesses can contribute innovation, innovation to help tackle climate change in terms of mitigation and help us adapt. The investment industry can contribute financing because we know that public finances will not be enough to address climate change, particularly to help um, developing countries transition on that side. So we can we can provide capital. But to do that, we need to have certainty about the direction of policy to do that. And the disappointing thing, I think, for us as the investment community is that COP didn't give us an, a, enough certainty about the, the regulatory landscape. They've delayed the decisions. They've kicked it down the line, be it next year. So I think what's inevitable is what we wanted to avoid in the industry, um, but hopefully we can still um, alleviate the worst of it, is that we don't want a disruptive and a disorderly transition. That will lead to market dislocation. It will lead to asset price repricing. It will lead to stranded assets, um, which we don't want as an investment community. And hopefully um, governments will come back next year and and sort of set that back into train. And lastly, as well, I'd say is also, um, I'm just thinking about your listeners and savers. We all have a responsibility in our everyday lives as well. We can take those actions as individuals. We can encourage action as an employee with our employer. Um, We can play our role as global citizens and sort of make um, the leaders that we elect and bring those to account. So I guess my overall message is that COP was about government leadership. But what we need to take from the road away from Glasgow is that we all need to show leadership in each of our different areas. As you say, hopefully there there was enough there to gain some momentum and some urgency towards the follow-up next year. Absolutely. And Ian, as you and the team meet the world's leading fund managers as part of your selection process, you know, managers such as Mylin and 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 Blue Bay, day to day, what do you hear and see from them regarding helping drive change at, at the companies that they're investing in? Yeah, as, as, as we've just heard there, I think you know, investment managers really are stepping up as well. I think we have seen, a, on my team, a real step change over the last, say, you know, five years. You know, managers are recognising they need to play their part, not, not just as businesses themselves in their own right, but to agitate for change and engage with the companies that they invest in. And I see them embedding environmental considerations at, um, at all levels. They're also adapting to a tsunami of regulations, to be fair, as well. And, and you know, society, clients, the regulations are all designed to drive them to do the right thing. Even the most basic funds, the lightest green, if you will, now engage with firms and vote on their equity holdings. Much more recently, earlier this year, the, the industry, the regulator in Europe, has prompted all funds to give themselves one of three labels. Um, without going into details, just think of them as light green dark green and impact. So we're certainly seeing that trend. Light green, maybe I should explain those terms. Light green, considering the environment broadly, generally, but diligently when investing in in the underlying companies. Darker green, much more focus on companies that are doing positive things, investing very much sustainably. And then this impact with a capital I is at the darkest green end, investing really very specifically tracking the holdings, measuring what is coming forth from these holdings. So very pinpoint and accurate way of investing in companies that are actively doing something very specific and positive. So when we meet these fund managers, we question them on uh, on their five Ps. We've spoken about the five Ps on this podcast before. Nikki and work. And we think you know, ESG, 
environmental awareness pervades all of those areas. So for the businesses, we want to hear about how they uh, recycle in their workplaces. Are they paperless now, for example? When it comes to the people and the teams, is there a specialist separate ESG team or is it conducted by analysts, stock analysts, credit analysts on, on the investment desks? How do these how do these people talk? You know, how often and in what formats? Philosophically, you know, what are the ESG beliefs of, of a fund or a strategy, you know, light green, dark green, etc.? The process P, day to day, how are ESG considerations, risks, etc., embedded into uh, the research, the research notes, the written documents, into risk controls, portfolio construction, and the like. And then finally, the performance area, actually looking at the holdings. Do they tally up with what we'd expect, given what we've heard about um, environmental considerations in the in the philosophy and the day-to-day process? We'd also look at uh, the voting records, the policies that the firm has in place. You know, I guess ultimately, we're trying to build up our mosaic of understanding of these managers, such as Bay, to understand the difference they're seeking to make as they invest in, and ensure, ultimately, you know, I guess, that it's not, it's not just greenwashing. And Mylin, just turning to you, obviously, as an investor yourself, how does your firm sort of go about affecting the change via the holdings in your funds? As we mentioned, your specialist bond investors, that, that's quite tricky, right? Because you don't get to vote. Ian was just talking there about active engaging, etc. So perhaps if you could bring to life for the listeners maybe some company examples. Of course, none of these are personal recommendations. This, this is just about bringing examples to life to help our listeners understand what's the art of the, of the possible in the sphere that you're operating yeah, thank you, Nikki. Um, maybe I'll cover, uh, I just want to come in maybe on the first part sure. a little bit and then sort of give you those examples and explain the extent to which um, fixed income investors can have influences that I guess in terms of the what we are able to do, I just really want to point out as well, it depends on the demand, we need to be given the mandate to some extent as well to address some of these issues, particularly where they're not considered investment relevant or material now. I think that's a really important point. So I'm just conscious about your listeners is that the extent to which they as members of their own pension fund um, in terms of their personal savings, you know, make that direction and signaling that they think these issues are important and need to be taken into account. And then obviously us as managers, we have a fiduciary duty to manage the assets and wealth of our um, clients to make sure that we grow those for them. And, and that means taking into account issues, whether they're ESG or traditional financial metrics that have a a potential to impact on the long-term returns that we have on that sort of side. So I guess that's just a plug in terms of we are managers um, of that part. So the the extent to which you as the provider of that capital can give us that mandate and give us that signal, the more that we can go beyond just an investment material um, sort of consideration of ESG issues. And then maybe just to return to your, um, the main part of your question, which was how do we as fixed income managers sort of have influence given we're not owners of companies? You're, you're totally right. We don't have access to proxy voting because we're not shareholders, but we're lenders. And, and I think people forget that just because you're lenders, they automatically assume we don't have influence. We do. And I think that's a really important point to make for a number of reasons. We have influence because if you look at the um, sort of size of the fixed income market versus the equity market, it's so much bigger. And the reason it's so much bigger is that for companies, 
loans. Generally, it's more of a cost-effective way for them to um, access capital through the debt market rather than give up equity. You know, they're hard-earned businesses. They don't want to give that away lightly. So that's why the debt market is so big on that sort of side. In some areas as well, um, if you think about it, the nature of the risk and return profiles for a lot of the activities that need to be promoted to enable the low-carbon transition are actually more appealing to the um, debt market than they are to equities um, on that sort of side. Because equities are looking for huge upsides potentially in some of the investments we need to make in infrastructure, in, in energy um, sort of and transport infrastructures, for example, and other areas are more attractive to the debt space. So it's not that we don't have influence. And because of all of these different reasons, obviously companies want to make sure that they position themselves in the best possible way to access capital at a lower cost and, and ensure they have a diversified investor base in terms of the debt market. So we do have influence. They're just different. And so for us as um, fixed income managers, we just need to be smart and understand where are those touch points? At what point do they occur in the issuance cycle? So for example, when a company first comes to the market to ask for debt, that's a huge scope for us to influence because we can decide not to participate. So we can sort of push back on some of the terms and conditions they have. Obviously, once that debt is issued, it goes into the secondary market. So potentially a lot of the trading happens from investors to investors. But then during that, obviously, we meet with companies to understand how they're progressing their business. So there's influence there. And also, I think there's also another touch point once debt has been issued, is that if something goes wrong and there's a need for restructuring, then companies need to come back to us as debt investors and, and have that discussion. And during that time, again, we can be like, OK, we'll help you support that restructuring. But these are our conditions on that side. So they're the different ways that debt investors in and of ourselves can have influence. But also what we're, we've realized is that alongside bilateral engagement, we can actually increase our influence if we actually work together with others. And that others means other debt investors, but also other equity investors. So collaborative engagement is another way that we can sort of expand and multiply our influence. And you, Nikki, you asked for some examples here. I can give you a, a few because they're in the public domain, maybe one to illustrate the specific company level engagement and one that is more on broader um, sort of issues. But they both are illustrative of sort of, I guess, collaborative engagement. And, and one is our engagement with a leading Mexican state-owned energy company, Pemex. And we, we're sort of co-lead um, sort of investors on this with, with another investor as part of a collaborative investor initiative called the Climate Action 100 Plus initiative. And that's really a global investor engagement initiative that is recognizing that we need to engage with the globally systemically carbon intensive industries and get them to ensure that they have robust net zero um, sort of climate plans on that side. And Pemex is a really interesting example in that they're 100% state owned. So if you were an equity investor, you could not engage with this company and have influence because they don't have any equities. So that's a really powerful example how the debt market, through its unique exposure to certain issuer types, can actually have a significant influence. And the role of state-owned entities um, is really important because if you think about fossil fuels and energy, most of the reserves are not owned by the publicly listed companies. They're owned by the state-owned entities. So that's where we've got a huge scope to influence. And then the second 
one I'd highlight is looking at more of an issue about deforestation. Now, that was a big theme that came out of COP that was mentioned earlier uh, by Ian, is that we know that to address climate change, one of the top three sources of emissions is land use and agriculture. And so the, the importance of ensuring we conserve forests in their role as carbon sinks. And so we are um, co-chairing a collaborative investor initiative that is engaging with governments like Brazil and Indonesia to address deforestation in terms of policies, implementation and data to make sure that we conserve those critical natural resources. So they're really good examples of where we as investors have been a bit smarter about where our touch points are and where we can influence. And I think that last example of deforestation really illustrates, again, another unique aspect of fixed income is that we can invest in and give funding to sovereigns and sub-sovereigns. And so in that context, again, we can have influence with those directly, whereas equity investors cannot. That's fascinating. And we all know money talks, right? So, so, you know, what you described there, I'm sure many of our listeners, and, and frankly, I include myself in that, had no idea around the kind of influence you can have, especially when it comes to governments through sovereign debt. So really fascinating. But again, putting myself in the shoes of our listeners, I suspect they may be thinking all well and good. That's the influence that you guys, and by you guys, I mean Barclays, Blue Bay, are having on companies that we interact with. But but what about us, ourselves? What are we doing about the move to zero? So maybe perhaps, Ian, I can I can come to you just to reflect a bit about the plans that Barclays have, but also, you know, what's already in action. Where do we stand? Yeah, yeah, as you say, it's all very well having these expectations of, of investee companies. But so, you know, we need to turn the lens on ourselves. And I'm pleased to say you know, that Barclays corporate intent is to be a net zero bank by 2050. And thinking back to what I said at the outset, we want to do that because that is in order to limit global warming to tolerable levels. Now, we're actually already net zero from our own operations. These are called scope one and scope two. Let me give you a few examples. We have solar panels on our, in our um, Indian campuses. We're actually aiming to be 90%-ish in terms of electricity use from renewable sources this year. That's, that's globally. And in fact, last year, waste production fell by over 50%. So there's some examples of of our footprint, but we actually intend to be net zero across all activities that flow from our business. That is the activities that flow from, for example, lending, capital markets activities, etc. Now, being amongst the world's largest 20 banks, this is an enormous task, and it's certainly one that dwarfs scope one and two, but it is one that we are intent on delivering. Furthermore, we've also committed 100 billion sterling to green financing by 2030, things like um, providing green mortgages or syndicating green bonds, etc. And in actual fact, we'd already reached about a third of that target by the end of last year. Finally, and we haven't spoken too much about this yet, is, is reporting and disclosure and transparency. Doing many good things, but then making that visible and reporting on this is important as well in this, in this journey. And so we continue to develop you know, Barclays' own uh, environmental, social and governance uh, disclosures for example, we're a founding member of the Principles for Responsible Banking and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which I'm pleased to say is, is typically abbreviated to the TCFD. In fact, having, you know, having been a founding member, we've reported against that framework for four years now already. And Mylene, coming to you. 
Yeah, so at Bluebird, we're, we're, we're certainly on that journey. We're, we're no means sort of there yet, but actually pre-COP, um, we issued a sort of net zero ambition statement along with our parent company because we really wanted to sort of communicate that we were aligned in terms of the global goal to support um, achievement of net zero and really wanted to update our, our sort of clients and other key stakeholders about where we were on that journey. So we, we, we sort of summarised, I guess, sort of brought everybody up to speed with what we're doing, particularly on the investment side because that's where for us um, climate change if you think about climate change exposure it's mostly indirect through our investment activities so um, we, we're making sure that we do something called ESG integration so that's that sort of systematic identification and understanding of the extent to which our investments are exposed to climate change risks whether they're physical risks or transition risks and then making sure we incorporate that into our investment decisions we're making sure that the extent to which we need to engage with companies to make sure that they mitigate and can adapt to the changing climate environment. We're also exploring the extent to which it's um, necessary potentially to reallocate capital more explicitly in terms of maybe reorientating away from activities that do harm, so exclusions potentially. You're hearing a lot of discussions that came out of COP about sort of coal on that sort of side and methane addressing those issues, but also increasingly as well and importantly reallocating capital towards good. What are we doing in terms of investing in those climate solutions? Really sort of creating the space and the capital and the access to capital at lower cost for those companies that we need to make that transition, those companies that we need to bring to scale, because otherwise um, we're not going to have that transition in terms of the new technologies that we want on that side. Outside of our investment activities, uh, obviously, as a service-based company, we're, we're primarily, our footprint is through the offices that we we have it, inhabit um, on that sort of side. So our energy use, our business travel, and in on that sort of side, certainly on our energy use, we, we source 100% from renewable energy. On that side, business travel is work in progress. You'll appreciate that it's gone down, I think, in our firms and in a lot of firms with COVID quite dramatically. And I think we're, we're looking at how we can understand that and the extent to which as well we can offset some of our, our carbon emissions. So certainly work in progress, but we're committed to that journey and working along this Brilliant. And I guess just to wrap things up, because I think we've covered a lot of ground, Mylin, you rightly put the spotlight back on all of us as global citizens that we can all take steps. But I guess the if I come back to the title of the podcast this week was Can Investors Save the World? And <laughs> Mylin, to give you the last word, and perhaps in more than one word, what's the answer? We can play our role. We cannot save the world by ourselves. And I think no single stakeholder can save the world by themselves. But I think to come back to a point I made earlier is that each one of us has a unique role to play and each one of us that translates into different dimensions on that side. But certainly the um, private sector, the finance community in particular, can play a key role in terms of providing the capital investments, the funding. We can bring that along if governments can create the regulatory and policy frameworks that enable us to be brought into that and incentivizes investors to really do good and avoid harm. But it's in our vested interests to make sure we tackle this because climate change is becoming a systemic risk if we don't address it. It's a multiplier. It's a health risk. It's an economic risk. It's a social justice risk. And so it requires everybody to play a role. Very well said. With that, Ian, Mylan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to our listeners and subscribers and do join us again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. 
This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. 